Ok, parfait. And so again, in this business of refining ideas, like what I have tried to do, the thing I've tried to do the most here is to say our imaginations are our limitations, never our training. Right? Like if you need to do chemistry, I will get on the phone and find, you know, someone to help us. And that's happened over all of the years here. Welcome to the Night Science Podcast. Where we explore the untold story of the scientific creative process. We are your hosts. I'm Italian I. And I am Martin Lurcher. Bonnie Bassler is a Howard Hughes investigator and a professor at the Molecular Biology Department at Princeton, where she also serves as the chair of that department. Bonnie's work has been revolutionary for our understanding of how bacteria communicate with one another in order to orchestrate group behaviors such as the emitting of light or attacking a much larger host. This communication, which is now known as quorum sensing, relies on a chemical language, and among her many discoveries, her lab found that not only does each species of bacteria have its own private language, they also share a universal language, which Bonnie calls a bacterial Esperanto. And Bonnie's lab also studies how to tune in to these bacterial conversations to manipulate them in order to stop them from becoming virulent, for example. In science, as in any other creative spheres of life, It often takes quite a long time and a lot of effort to make fundamental contributions. And Bonnie is a case in point, having worked on quorum sensing for more than three decades. And it's interesting to think that it all started for her when she wanted to become a veterinarian originally, but she discovered her fascination with biology after taking the required courses in biochemistry and molecular biology. She says, they were full of logic problems and puzzles. I just adored it. So welcome, Bonnie, to the podcast. Welcome, Bonnie. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted <laughs> to be here. <laughs> so, Bonnie, as a first question, can you describe your general approach to scientific creativity? Is that something you ever think about consciously? I'm thinking about it now. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't think I really think about it consciously. I think by now it's just the way I work. And I would say that I try not to figure out what the answer is going to be ahead of time. I let nature surprise me. I just try to go where the science is taking me instead of having a preconceived idea of how it ought to have been set up by evolution. So is that kind of your mindset that the bacteria have had four billion years to evolve and you're like a sleuth trying to unravel what they've been at it all this time? Yes, we think that they have had so much time to perfect this. And our job is to try to get them to spill a few of their secrets mm. in the little while that each one of us gets, you know, relative to their amount of time on Earth, in the little while that each of us gets to work on this. Yeah. So you said that they had so much time. Is that something that also guides your thinking when you're trying to figure things out, that it's going to be in some way perfect? Like, are you looking for something that could be optimal? Yeah. So let's say we figure something out, you know, like, oh, there's this little mechanism or there's a feedback loop or there's a particular molecule, like you guys um, already noted. Hmm. But then I think the next thing we always do is we say, why would it be that one? Or why is the hmm. system built that way? Or what is good and what is vulnerable about using that mechanism or that feedback loop or that kind of a receptor or that kind of molecule? And then you're right that we think that there's probably 
from the bacterium's point of view, really good reasons. And it's on us to figure out why, if I can anthropomorphize, why would they choose that? Yeah. And that does guide sort of the next experiments that we do. And then that helps us try to figure out, and I want to be clear, these are stories about why, but, you know, we figure out how, what, and when. That's what right. we do in the lab. Right. And then we make stories or interpretations, it's probably a more scientific word, right. for why they do that. And those why would they be doing that actually guides us into what experiments we would do next. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that you distinguish the how and what, which is the material for the scientific communication. You know, it's what we write in our papers, but it's the why that behind the scenes guides were actually thinking to test next. You know, a lot of science educators say that you shouldn't ask why questions, that you shouldn't anthropomorphize, that you should just like, just the facts, stick to what you can measure. But behind the scenes, though, you do use the why questions to guide your thinking. Constantly, that's what makes us passionate. You know, those are the mysteries and we may never get those whys right. How would we know? Right. But they definitely help you. So for sure, how, what, and when can drive a next experiment, for sure. But the whys, that's the reason to work on this system, right? Is because it's so remarkable that these primitive single-celled creatures, you know, they're multilingual. They (laughs) Multilingual. Yeah, they they can do these group behaviors. So when you say why, can you explain? Because why is a very general question, right? Like, what do you mean when you say why? A student or I will be in here talking, for example, and he or she will have made, you know, a discovery. They will have figured out how, what, or when about communication. There's a molecule. I figured out the structure of this molecule, and it looks like it's this molecule. And then we would sit here and say, why would they use that molecule instead of some other? Or you already said there's this universal language. We found that lots of bacteria you know, we're making mm. the same molecule. And we were like, why would they do that? And then that drives us to do an experiment to measure how, what, and when. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that why questions are the ones that make us passionate. Maybe postdocs and grad students in the lab, they just can't get as excited about questions if it's just, when does this happen? What is this exactly? But why has a certain kind of hold on our imagination, even though someone could argue against this like imaginary science educator would say, why questions don't make sense? Because, you know, bacteria don't have (laughs) consciousness, so they they don't do something for a reason. So it doesn't make sense to ask a why question. Sure. Why questions can last you a lifetime, right? Hmm. And then you go in day to day or week to week and measure how, what, and when. But those are finite. You know, what is the mechanism under the receptor? You know, when does the bacterium turn on this gene? And then you get real rigorous answers, which is essential to ask the next good why question, right? Or the next good how, what, and when to build up to, you know, some kind of, for me, you know, we all draw models at the end of our papers, little cartoons. Those rattle around in my head, not much more sophisticated than those cartoons. And they... They drive me bananas thinking about why is it like that? Why is it like that? So when I say why, what I mean, I think, is what selective force has caused this behavior or this feature to evolve, right? So really, when I say why, I'm thinking about some kind of 
adaptive evolution. Is that the same as your why or is your why a different one? It's pretty much the same. My lab figures out molecular mechanisms. Mm -hmm. What is the benefit of this molecular mechanism and what's the price they paid or what do they lose by not having evolved, if I can use my science words, evolved a different solution? And that's part of the why questions. And again, you know, the way I'm talking to you, you can think of experiments then to try to get at answers about those kinds of higher order questions. Right. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, these kinds of why questions are motivating you. They motivate Sorry. us to our next experiment, which is what we come in here to do. And so we do sit here and think about, if I did experiment X, then we can try to imagine what the answers might be. And going back to what I said in the beginning, we don't want to say we know the answer. And, you know, we can say, well, it could be A, B, or C. And then we actually sit here and say, well, if we got outcome A, I don't know, like this gene turned on, what would we know that is different mm. from what we know now? Or if we got outcome B, what would we know that is different from what we know now? And if the answer is not much, right, <laughs> right then, then you don't need to do it. Right. Don't yeah. do it. But that, I think, is how younger scientists get better and better at it, because there's science you can do, and there's science you should do. And they're not always the <laughs> same, right? And so I think having these sort of higher order, higher level sort of why and what if, I think that when you come down to what you're going to actually pipette into your Eppendorf, it helps you pipette better things more frequently than pipetting things that give you answers that didn't change how you thought about your system. And so you're not further along in at least your perceived understanding. And then I also think that the exercise of, you know, let's imagine this experiment, let's imagine the answers, A, B, C, and then when we get D, it's really fun, right? Yes. And that's when we're really cooking with gas. And I also okay. think that what also happens, I don't know, maybe other people have said this on some of your programs, is that you've imagined three outcomes from this experiment and you get a fourth one. And very often students come and say, oh, it didn't work. Uh -huh. you know? And it's like, wait a minute, there are the experiments that didn't work, like you pipetted the wrong thing into the tube or you poured the pellet in the drain when you were supposed to keep the pellet. <laughs> Those, I agree, they didn't work. Uh -huh. But then there's the ones that didn't work because it's unexpected. It's like Yes, your thinking is not grand enough. I mean, and so again, yeah, we yeah. do ask why a lot, even though we never, ever, ever measure why. Yeah, that's, that's actually true. We never measure why. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I love this discussion of the questions, right? And you're saying there's this hierarchy and at the top you have the why and the what if questions. But when I asked you what's the difference between them, you kind of group the what if with the what and when questions. But the example that you gave before that was the question, what if the bacteria would actually be talking with other species? And that's not really, it's not a why question. It's a what if, like, let's imagine something, you know, like, you know, they're talking to each other. Maybe they're talking to the whole world and maybe they're talking to their hosts. Like there's a lot of questions that you can ask, which are not why, but which are like on the same level. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> So I think that what if for me is sort of in between the yeah. really big unanswerable ones and the things where you can actually then sit down and say, what am I going to do tomorrow? You know, pipette into this tube to answer a question that I can measure in the lab and output. You know, Bonnie, it's so great to listen to you. So validating 
for the kind of things that Martin and I have been thinking about. You know, we have been promoting this view of uh, night science where we think about science as having two languages. And I think that the way you're describing falls very consistently with that. There's a night science language, which is full of whys and asking why would the bacteria do something so crazy and what does bacteria want right now? And then there's the day science language, which is precise and metaphor-free. And that one deals with experimental designs and controls and figuring out the when, what, and how. And so... A lot of what you've described seems to us as going back and forth between night science language and day science language. Like night science language makes you passionate about a particular question. And then the trick is to translate it into a testable experiment. Absolutely. I'd say this is science in the shower. <laughs> yeah, and the Why science is it with what, showers? Yeah, well, I don't know what that is, right? Well, maybe well, well very clean, all, I guess. Yeah, it all started with marine bacterium for me. I don't know. But I totally agree. You can't see me. I'm sitting here smiling because it is. It's the stuff that I was saying. It's what rattles around in my head when I'm, you know, daydreaming. Maybe I should mm. call it night dreaming. You know, a daydreaming and thinking about it. And to me, when you're thinking about the discussion of a paper where you're, or at least used to be allowed to speculate <laughs> wildly, mm-hmm. and now they're like, ah, too speculative. But, <laughs> and then I also think that it's really, really important that that, what you guys are calling night science, that that is in your day life, right? And so for yeah. sure, you have to go out and rigorously measure something. But if you want to think of experiments to change our understanding of nature, I think it's really hard to do that without doing the night thinking that you guys are talking about. Oh, it's right. impossible, I think. Yeah, right? Because otherwise you just measure, again, it's the difference between can do and should do. I mean, should do, you still have to be able to do it, <laughs> yeah. right? Right, but, right, like with measurements, you can measure anything. You can measure some oh, yeah, billion sure. kinds of experiments you can yeah, and, and that's sort of surveys, right? And some surveys are really, really good. So I do think that the going back and forth between those, you know, so that in the end, your days, you're marching forward in understanding, at least in some of your days, and then... A good but day. being motivated by, like, why should I get up here and rush into here and look into that incubator? Because there's going to be a surprise on that Petri plate for me. I mean, that's yeah. what gets me out of the shower. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> no, totally. You know, in a piece that Eli and I wrote, we called that the data hypothesis conversation. Like you say, you need to generate data, but then... That's not enough, right? From the data, you have to figure out what's going on. You have to answer the why questions. You have to find your hypothesis. And then you're going to go and get more data. And so it's a cycle or maybe a spiral more. Yeah, and it's usually wrong. It's almost always wrong. <laughs> you know, and like we either become like this or we're selected to be incredibly optimistic, right? Yeah, you need to have a certain level of uh, excitement about it. I, I have a question, Bonnie, about what you said before of engineering an experiment such that if you find this, then it does teach you something. And, you know, it was a really kind of rational hypothesis testing experimental design. But then you also said that what you're secretly also hoping to see is a surprise in the incubator or, you know, a student coming in and telling you, guess what, this happened. So how do you find a balance between those two things of not sort of over designing the experiment so that it can't 
teach you something unexpected, but also having some kind of semblance of rationality to the design. Yeah. The real question about a particular experiment, you know, where we have sat here and imagined it's either going to be A or it's going to be B, you know, and maybe you get C, right? I think the way you do that, you always have to have a positive and a negative control. (laughs) So you have to know that at least technically that experiment worked, i.e. there's Mm -hmm. no colonies on the negative control plate and there are a lot of colonies on the positive control plate or whatever it is. It doesn't turn a color, it does turn a color, right? There's a band, there's not a band. Mm. And so you have to have that to ground you that the experiment was performed well. Yeah, technically correct. Technically, and that it was controlled. And I think once you have that, then in what would be called the experimental part, you know, the unknown parts of it, then you are able to interpret, right? And when you're getting close to writing a paper, you should be able to predict the outcome. You know, we found a new gene. It looks like a repressor. Well, if we knock it out, genes better turn on, right? There's a point when you have to be able to predict the outcome of a sort of what I would call a final experiment, right? But that's really toward the end. It's like dotting I's and crossing T's, like we learned something. It's almost past tense. We learned Mm -hmm. something, we can prove it, here's the verification. So there is a point when you actually do experiments that you can absolutely predict the outcome, because that tells you you're thinking about it at least potentially correctly, right? Mm -hmm. But then, but most of the time, not so much. And I think the controls are the key, because they place boundaries in what you're allowed to interpret, right? Classic day sites. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, classic day science. And then the interpretation like, gets into the evening. Yeah. So, Bonnie, you were just talking about the kind of things that you do when you're getting towards the end of a project, right? When you're mm-hmm. just about to write the paper. But before you also talked about the unexpected things happening, like you have to do this experiment and you think it could be A or B or maybe C, and then you get mm-hmm. D. Mm-hmm. So, is this typically how you make your most interesting discoveries, you would say? Absolutely. And for sure, right, the unexpected thing is is the most Mm. thrilling and the most aggravating, of course, because I didn't expect that. What do I do now? And, uh, you know, because it's upheaval in your day. You know, you or a student, you're sort of planning out at least a few days or a few weeks ahead. And the surprise Mm -hmm. is awful and wonderful at the same time. Because when you get the surprise, you immediately think you're wrong, Mm -hmm. at least for a little while, because it sets you on a new path. But yeah, that is how we get our new directions, like our new big directions from those surprising results and then hunting down what if, why, and how, and how and when, (laughs) right? Yeah. And then I think for me, an incredibly lucky part, you know, is 30 some years ago is that nothing was known, right? And so, you know, my lab, they were all surprises. Yeah, you were at the right time at the right place. Oh boy, holy shamoli. And you were the right person for it. And I want to ask you a question about basic science, because I see you as a real champion of basic science. You're studying a fundamental process about a topic that doesn't necessarily need to provide us with uh, health benefits. I mean, of course, it can be related and there's a lot of implications, but at its core, you're studying life. And the question that I have for you is, in today's world, do you see basic science as under threat because of movements to 
turn it into a business or make it essentially just biomedical. Do you see any kind of change in the culture? Absolutely. There's a misunderstanding about how applications get made. You know, it's disease du jour, make an application. But you have put in the groundwork, which is what academics do, to get there. And so I wish that there was more of a premium put on how important the step is that I and my gang do and lots of other groups. You know, and I think like even if you just look at my crazy field, right, this started in a glow-in-the-dark marine bacterium that never even hurt a fish, right? right? It turned on light. And there was no idea of a biomedical application. There wasn't even another example of a second bacterium that did it. But what was so fantastic about bioluminescence, and this is all before we had genomes and sequencing projects and GFP and all these fantastic reporters and things we have now, transcriptomes, we didn't have any of that. You know, it made the invisible world of the bacteria visible to us, the scientists, and we could measure it. It was like this readout of the bacteria communicating, and it was all we had. And so then fast forward 30-some years, which seems like a long time, but it's not that long of a time, right? And now we know that quorum sensing is the norm in the bacterial world. We know that if you make bacteria that can't talk or can't hear, they're completely avirulent. We know that quorum sensing works in the microbiome. And so it's been this renaissance and this revolution in our understanding of microbes and their profound influence in nature, all from this crazy, goofy, glow-in-the-dark bacteria. And if somebody had cut us off at the knees back then... Mm. You know, there, none of this would have happened. Yeah, there's hundreds no. and hundreds and hundreds of labs and that yeah. work on these things now. And I don't want to. That sounded arrogant. Like I'm taking credit. I'm not. It's because this glow in the dark bacteria made light, right? <laughs> and so I think that still people, you know, want. Of course, they want applications, and it's actually getting pretty close now, right? And thirty some mm-hmm. years isn't from nothing, you know. To that isn't. I don't know. It doesn't seem so long of an ask. Right. But anyway, again, like I think if you go back to like how Vandiver Bush founded the NIH, it was the idea in the United States Hmm. of this partnership between the not for profit academic world and the for profit world of companies, where my job is not. (laughs) to make, you know, quorum sensing interruption strategies at the level of a 55-gallon drum that are safe, that can go into a human being. My job Mm -hmm. is to make it at the level of a couple of Petri plates. You know, Mm -hmm. like my job is Mm -hmm. to make ideas, right? And then somebody else is really good at translating those ideas into applications. Yeah, it's a beautiful division of labor. So you were talking about You know, you started doing this in some obscure bacterium that lived in some obscure marine organism. And I think that at that time, probably not many people were very interested in what you were doing, right? So I would imagine that there were a lot of obstacles, right? That it might have been difficult to get support for that work. And, you know, you were talking about the resilience that you need to have as a scientist. So was that as important as I imagine for your path? I mean, I... Come on, I have the luckiest, happiest life in the world. So I get to mm. be around smart, creative, curious people, and we just play these games, you know, these high-intensity games 
all day, every day. And we actually think those games do something good. You know, they make knowledge. They're good for humanity. But then going back to these sort of early dark days, which is funny since I was working on light. And so here's this back then, this young woman, you know, saying, but these bacteria, they're communicating, they're doing these group behaviors. And there was just this sort of snobbery that bacteria didn't have the genetic wherewithal to be able to do any of that stuff. And actually what it turned out to be is that we just didn't have the technology to measure those things back then. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, it was real fringe for a long time and I couldn't get a grant, blah, blah, blah. I'd been here 12 years before I got an NIH grant. But on the other hand, I do have a job and at a really amazing school. And what's amazing about Princeton is that we don't have a medical school. We don't have any professional schools here. So everybody in my department... (laughs) That's the best thing about Princeton. It's an amazing thing about Princeton. And I'll come back to it. So what's amazing about this department is all of us work on model systems. And again, at that very first discovery place that we talked about already. Everybody in my department has the best model system for pattern formation, for aging, for development. And so they really took a shine to this project and they were a powerhouse in microbiology too. And so they hired me, they tendered me. I didn't have any money, any external money. I had like one little like NSF starter grant, you know, Mm. and they just really had an intellectual bottom line with me. And they also thought People have known about bacteria for 500 years. She's thinking about it in a different way. That's going to take a little time to percolate. And so here I am. I think it's amazing that I mean, it just shows the role of a nurturing environment and a person's development. And it's also interesting that you study the group behavior of bacteria. And in your lab, that's also a group. And there's also a group behavior. There must be a kind of secret to how you nurture the scientists in your own lab. So maybe you can provide some insight for us on how is it that you mentor particular postdocs and grad students in your one-on-ones? Do you, for example, emulate the kind of training that you received as a postdoc fellow, or is it different with each person? Yeah. So the answer is the last, that it's different with each person. I always thought, you know, after almost 30 years here that I'd figure this out, but each come in different, right? And I have to learn. Yeah, who knew? (laughs) Anyway, and I have to learn my way with each one, right? And so people always say, you know, where do you get your next idea? How do you know what to do? And that's true for Mm -hmm. me. That's true for everybody in the lab. And of course, the group, like where ideas come from and how they get refined and how they get rejected or how they get accepted or how you get to the next experiment you do, it comes from the group, right? That's why we don't all just work in our garages by ourselves, right? Is because it comes from the immediate group, which are the, you know, let's call it the dozen people in the lab. You know, we have lab meetings, we talk, we talk in between and sitting in our benches, you know, and we help each other make our ideas better. Again, you know, it's all a quorum sensing group. It's more than the individual. (laughs) That's happening all the time. And the other thing that's been really, really great for me Two is the we have what we call the quorum sensing supergroup here, which is that you know I was trained sort of as a biochemist and then sort of as a toothpick geneticist as a postdoc, but you know <laughs> these molecules are chemicals. You have to do chemistry, right? We want to understand how they interact with receptors. You have to do crystallography. We want to understand why the circuit is set the way it does. You have to do physics and theory. We have to do imaging now. And so what's happened is that there's all these groups that are local here at Princeton that we collaborate. And so again, in this business of refining ideas, like what I have tried to do, the thing I've tried to do the most here Hmm. is to say our imaginations are our limitations, never our training. 
right? Mm. Like if you need to do chemistry, I will get on the phone and find, you know, <laughs> and that's happened over all of the years here. So Bonnie, you were talking about all the different people in your groups and that the imagination should be your limitations mm -hmm. and not the techniques. But when you were talking about the people from different disciplines, you were mostly focusing on people's abilities to do different types of experiments. But in the context of the imagination, maybe there's also some value in having people with different backgrounds so they can contribute from their background, so they can import ideas from where they come from into this new field. Yeah, you're right. So there's two kinds of backgrounds. One is your training. You're an engineer, mm -hmm. you're a physicist, you're a geneticist, you're a crystallographer, you're a biochemist. When you come here, that's a background. Mm -hmm. And the other is where you got it or where you came from. And of course, I think labs are like the model for global peace because yeah. we come from all over and all these different backgrounds, both training, where you got it, and your origins. And you put all that in the mix and it's just awesome. You know, it's magical. Mm -hmm. So the lab was always very international, right? And now it's international and there's these different training backgrounds. And I think all those things add. And to get to that, I always wonder for exactly the reason you just said, at any point in time, there's 10 or 12, you know, people in this lab and me, we go after these few questions and we solve it. And I always wonder what a part of my night science is thinking if different people came, you know, or were thrown together for these few years, you know, where they overlap each other, or overlap with me, would we make completely different discoveries than the ones we're making? You know, like, is there all this stuff sort of lying on the side of the road? And we're just making these few, what I think are, you know, wonderful and fun discoveries. But in fact, it's because of those backgrounds, both their trainings and where they come from and how they think and how they were brought up. And I think the openness to have diversity is one kind of openness, but there's also the, would you agree, the scientific openness to allow the project to unfold? And like what you were saying at the very beginning, that you follow the data, and if something unexpected happens, then you don't say, oh, no, I wasn't expecting this. Yeah, we sort of have a let's go for it approach, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. We won't die from that. <laughs> you know, like, let's yes. try. Yeah. Would kill, kill us? Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. Right? You know, and that's like the part about, you know, like talking yourself out of every experiment for all the reasons it can go kerfluey. You're like, yeah, yes. then there's Friday. You'll come Friday, right? <laughs> Thursday, right? And, yeah, yeah. and yeah. so I think that we do have that. And again, you know, now I think the group, I hope the group is kind of known for that kind of freewheeling, but it's controlled right. chaos. It's mm. organized chaos. And then it is true, going back to your idea about mentorship, is I do struggle with and I try to let these things play out. But then there's this moment where how do you see it when it's not going to yield or not going to yield now or some graduate student, you know, it's not yielding. These are people whose careers at some level, their career trajectories are in their hands. I mean, they have to do it, but they're in mine too. Yeah, no pressure. That's what I mean about the sort of organized chaos. It can't just be chaos that never yields, right? right? And yeah. I think the sort of setup that we're talking about, the open-minded spirit, the different disciplines that people have come from helps to let those projects yield into results that make stories. Sometimes you see basketball players play and they don't look stressed, even though it's a high pressure situation. And I kind of admire that playful attitude. I think it's the same with us. Like it's high pressure situation, right? The career is on the line, but 
you know that if you're not going to be playful about it, then nothing's going to work altogether. So you, yeah, you I mean, go. come on. In this field, the hours are long. The pay is bad. You might as well have fun, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? And, so, and then I also think that we have to just say to ourselves, you know, we always do this. Oh, shucks! Oh, shucks! You know, I'm so stressed. That's you know, high intensity. I'm so stressed. Right, yeah. We should just say we like it. We like being yeah. a little out of control. We like thinking, are we just <laughs> yeah. going to screw this whole experiment up at the end of the day? Yeah. You know, when all the timers are going off at once. You know, <laughs> or am I going to put the wrong thing in at the last step right and then just say we like just admit to ourselves that either we came that way or we became like that and that we (laughs) actually enjoy sort of living on the edge you know in a kind of nerdy way but living on the edge but that's part of the fun and you know i'm not apologetic about that anymore like i like that yeah yeah yeah, totally i love that phrasing living on the edge in a nerdy yes. way. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> really, that's what we all came here for, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and I don't want to go home at five o'clock and watch reality TV. Like, I want to <laughs> no. be, you know, jumping up to come in here and, you know, your guys' night signs drive me crazy at night, wondering about where it's going and how we're going to get there. I just like it. I like thinking about that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's awesome. So, Bonnie, we covered a lot of ground. Good in this luck. Discussion. No, no, no. No, I love this conversation. I think it was really fun and really interesting. But fun. maybe there's something that you thought we should be talking about and we didn't mention it. Is there anything else you think that's interesting for people to know about your creative process? How do you explain right. something that's so amorphous and that relies on serendipity and who's in the lab. And actually, this was really fun to talk about. I hope that the listeners get that there's, (laughs) at least for me, there's not a formula, but it's so interesting. It's not just Wild West and let whatever happen, happen. And there's not a formula. I sort of live between those things and try my hardest with each project and person in the lab and they overlap. And I hope that your listeners get that it's yeah. it's really a privilege to get to do that. I mean, my job, our job is to somehow think about things that no one in the world has ever thought about before. Right? Like what a great job. Yeah. Who does right? that? Yeah, who gets <laughs> to do that? Right. And then yeah. I also think the other thing I think now I know who I am, right? And when young people mm including people that come to my lab or young people, I meet students, I meet undergraduates, you know, when I'm, you know, out on the circuit and they'll say, I can never be like you. Right. And I'm like, but I wasn't like me 30 years ago. (laughs) Right. Like that, that as this evolution of creativity that you two are talking to me about, I evolved during that time too. And like, what I wish is that it's fine to have, you know, I have my science heroes and it's, fantastic if some people think you know i fit in that bucket but you need to be comparing yourself to somebody who's two years ahead of you you know like a first year graduate mm-hmm. or a third year you know and the, the woman that i was when i was 25 years old is not the woman i could never have had this job then and so like i just want people to understand that I learned all of this part of the science process during these years. I didn't come formed this, you know, like I could never have answered the questions you're asking me today, 25 years ago, because I was really entrenched in just the experiment I was doing. 
I think it's so interesting how in our profession, we have this privilege of continuously evolving and mm-hmm. honing our trade and it's developing, a real, yeah. developing. Yeah, it's a real privilege. And just to reflect also on what you said about it's not all chaos, but it's not just all order. I think that that's like the real benefit of thinking about things as being either day science or night science. I think it's this mm-hmm. dichotomy that gives us like controlled disorder with, uh, mm-hmm. I know, allowing ourselves to go crazy with the night science, but then realizing, no, you have to do the experiment. There's got to be controls, positive controls, negative controls. You got to have day science. It's like this yin-yang and science allows you, science requires you to have both. Yeah, and yeah. that's a luxury and a privilege. Bonnie, this was such an awesome conversation. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> I had so much you fun. Of, you, no, guys you guys are going to be like, okay, there's one podcast we're not going to put up. Anyway. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Sorry to tell you, but this one is <laughs> yeah. definitely going to go up. Sorry to disappoint you. It was really a fun conversation. I have to tell you, I was totally neurotic about this. I'm like, these guys are crazy. I can't answer this question. <laughs> I have, you have no idea. I've, I've been hand, walking around with the email of the five questions with scribbles, oh, yeah. none of which I used, and for, for two weeks. And it was actually really? really fun. Yeah, I never sit around and think about why does it work the way it's done. And do I actually have you know, principles by which I, you know, I mean, yeah. I think I have principles, but you know what I mean? But like real, like can yeah, I articulate yeah. Yeah. some of, what makes at least this group work. And that was kind of fun to, and that kind of was very fun to actually. But you know, this is why Itai and I are doing this, right? Because nobody really, like you say, has the luxury to sit around and think about, you know, how am I doing what I'm doing? And we never do this and we don't teach this to young scientists. And and that's what this is for. I agree. But, and so then I think about this like freewheeling conversation that we just had for an hour. You know, I think if I was listening to this and I'm not the two of you and I'm not me, like, does it make any sense? Right. That's what I want. You know, like it is so hard and it not hard to talk about. You have to actually experience it. That's what I don't know if I'm getting that across. Anyway. Yeah. No, no, I I think you're right. But, but I think, I think it's helpful because people are experiencing this. I think the young people, they do realize, oh, I have no idea what this means. Like, what do I do now? And if they see that, that people like you also have the same kind of struggles and yeah. the same kind of confusion, I think it's very helpful. I hope so. And I think, <laughs> I hope for ours, this conversation, I mean, you two are really good at this. And I hope what they get is that we're enjoying ourselves, you know, like it's yeah. sort of, yeah. it's sort of that like came across, tor- <laughs> yeah. that came torture, across. right? <laughs> like, yeah. 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 So, I think uh, yeah. one thing I may remember the most from this is your boisterous laugh. Like you're just obviously having a good time. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah, I think if a person like me can make it, if you love science, anybody can make it. <laughs> there was no evidence this was going to work out okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you.